All right, then, as we grab a seat, I am going to see if I can put Caleb on the spot to open in prayer. Or is that not a fair thing to do? Yeah? Okay. Amen. All right, so we got through almost to the end of uh, chapter 5, section 2, and that's where we'll pick up this morning, and then we'll keep moving from there. So chapter 2 says that all things come to pass unchangeably and certainly in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, who is the first cause. Thus, nothing happens to anyone by chance or outside of God's providence, Yet by the same providence, God arranges all things to occur according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or in response to other causes. And then the text there is Genesis 8.22. Does someone want to take that? Kenan? Genesis 8.22. All right, so it sounds like a pretty ordinary statement. Does that match up with our experience? Every year there's spring, followed by summer, followed by fall, and then winter. And here's what happens when we get very accustomed to certain patterns, is that we lose our sense of majesty about them. Isn't it remarkable every year that geese who have never flown south before know what to do? Isn't that remarkable? Isn't it remarkable that a heifer who has never watched another cow-calf, that calf slides out and she's up on her feet licking that thing off, getting the blood to flow, getting it dried? Isn't that remarkable? Okay, I see that a hundred times a year, so the magic is gone for me. But just stop and think, and I think one of the, the tasks we have as Christians is to just step back sometimes and think about what we're watching. Think about the glory of things that are just every day. Okay? The earth is just spinning and moving and everything is just working. Okay? And every year we can put seed in the ground and the one and a half bushels of oats that you put in the ground turns into 150 bushels coming out. That's remarkable. Okay? That's the stuff of magic. Uh, and that's why sometimes I think when people look at doctrines like providence or like God's sovereignty or some of these other things, I think what can happen is we look at it just in terms of logic chopping. And I love logic. I will never, ever criticize logic. I think we need more of it in our society. But I think what happens is a lot of conservative Christians can get a nine-pound brain and a heart of stone. Okay, And that's not the goal. The goal is to be in, in a constant state of delight at what God is doing in his creation, okay? Uh, even think in terms of our personal salvation, right? And you start talking about the order of salvation, and all of a sudden, uh, your next thing you know, you're finding yourself into Reformed theology, 
and it's just all about logic chopping and being right. But there's a certain magic that's there. The rebirth is a gift. Okay, this isn't just about winning a debate. This, God actually took out my heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. That's remarkable. That's magical kind of stuff. And this is why I think, I, I often think Christians should read a lot more C.S. Lewis and a lot more Tolkien and a lot more Chesterton because those men actually see the world as it is. They see magic everywhere, okay, because they live in a magical world. We live in a world of symbols and magic because God is providential. And so the succession of seasons isn't something that, um, isn't something that we should see as just kind of cold, hard logic, by no means. It's, it's magical. I'll stop there. Is it a problem among conservative Christians that sometimes we just think in terms of cold, hard logic and we lose the magic? We lose the, the mystery? Is that a problem? No? Okay, so I, I would encourage you in your private reading, your non-Bible reading, pick up Narnia or pick up Lord of the Rings. I think that's a, a more accurate commentary on reality than a lot of science books might be. They, they see the reality behind what we don't see. And then it talks here, this is getting into a little finer points of theology or philosophy, however you want to call this, that all things to occur according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily freely or in response to other causes. Well, what does that mean? First of all, we've discussed this already. What is the primary cause of everything that has ever happened, is happening right now, and will ever happen? What's God. God is the primary cause. God is energizing all of it. God has a decree that he's working out in history. And that means we're robots. Right? Wah, wah, wah. Okay? No, we are not robots. We are most certainly not robots. We are living, breathing things with memories and thoughts and personalities. And we make decisions a hundred times a day. A lot of them are just so much a part of us. Here's another thing to just stop and think about. How many decisions do you make in a day that you don't think about? They're just so natural because this is just the way I am. I just make a hundred decisions a day that to me make perfect sense, the next person might do something different, right? We do this just by reflex. We make a thousand decisions a day that make sense to us uh, because it's really me, okay? It's really me doing this stuff. It's really me thinking that way. It's really my memory. It's really my plans. Uh, so how does this fit? Okay, so God is the primary cause of everything. We can't do away with that. Uh, God is in and under and through all things. But he works through secondary causes. And we've talked about this a little bit before. What does that mean? What would be an example of a secondary cause? What's that? Gravity? Sure. Yeah. God is powering gravity, but it's doing things, right? So sure. Mm-hmm. Character? Yeah. You're in a certain situation, you're going to deal with it a certain way that might be different than I would, right? And it'll achieve a different outcome for you than it might for me, right? This isn't random to God, but it's, it's real. There's secondary causes, right? What else might be some? 
When you sit down at a meal and pray, who are we thanking? God? How did that food get on the table? What's that? By means, yeah. Mom made it, right? And before that, someone picked it up at the grocery store, and before that, somebody drove it there, and before that, somebody packaged it, and before that, somebody processed it, and before that, somebody drove it to the processing plant, and before that, a farmer worked with it, and before that, he bought his inputs, and before that, someone made a tractor, and before that, someone was smelting steel, and before that, someone was melting steel. Right? Those are secondary causes. But we're not directly thanking the trucker and the processing plant and the farmer and, every, and mom. We should, but we're thanking God, right? Because God did all of this. And I think I've shared the story about Luther when he saw uh, a young girl milking a cow. He says, that's as though God himself is getting milk to your table. God's doing that. God's doing that. Okay? He's not saying that little girl is God, but he's saying God is doing this. This is how God takes care of his creation. And then it makes a distinction here. Necessary, freely, or in response to other causes. So again, this helps us to have some categories of thought to square God's sovereignty with the fact that we are actually free moral agents. Um, Is how does causation work? There's different types of causes. There's necessary causes and there's free causes. Well, what's the difference? Um, okay, is 2 plus 2 necessarily 4? Yeah, necessarily 4. Okay, and if we come back to a different time, a different culture, a different planet, would it still be 4? Yeah. Does it depend on anything other than God directly to be 4? No, that's just God decided to make numbers and logic work a certain way. Okay, so 2 plus 2 equals 4 is an absolute necessity. In any possible universe, it would be four. Absolute necessity. Okay? It cannot possibly other than what it is. Because God directly moves it that way. Now I'll give you another one. Uh, As far as all of you can tell, am I married to Tanya? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay? So does that necessarily make me Tanya's husband? Mm-hmm. Is it an absolute necessity that I am Tanya's husband? No. No. No, if I was born 400 years ago, I would have married someone else. Okay? So, is it, necess- is it necessary that I am Tanya's husband? Yes. Okay? In terms of God's providence, this is where he put me in, this is the wife he gave me, this is the way it, it worked out in, in my life. But it's not an absolute necessity that I am Tanya's husband because I'd still be me whether I was married to her or not. Okay, do you see the difference? One, one depends on circumstances, one depends on contingencies, and the other is just, this is just a brute fact no matter what. Okay, and it would be that way no matter what happens. Okay? How do you separate from brute fact? I wouldn't separated from brute fact. I would just say God's providence works differently in different situations.
Right, so what's still underwriting all of it to make it sure that it will happen the way it does is God's decree. But God can use, and this I think helps us to think through, okay, it's not robotic, like 2 plus 2 equals 4. There's contingencies, there's other things that are happening. Um, that it's not an essential part of me to be Tanya's husband, but now that God put me in the place and circumstances that he has, this is the way providence has played out, I am necessarily Tanya's husband. But it's not an absolute necessity, right? My agency is still involved in what God's doing, okay? This isn't God rolling the dice. This isn't, oh, I wonder who Matt's going to marry. Or this isn't God foreseeing that, he'll, that I'll marry Tanya, and then he goes back and decrees it. God decrees it all, but he's using means to do it, okay? So this isn't robotic. And I don't know if that's too fine or too tricky a distinction to make. But do you see that God, there's this reaping and sowing principle that God puts in to creation. This isn't robotic. This isn't a puppet master. Okay? There's real things that happen. If you go this way, it'll go there. If you go this way, it'll go there. Right? That, that's real. God lays out blessings and cursings. Take your path. Okay? If you go down the cat, path of curses, you will get curses. If you go down the path of blessing, you will get blessings. So is that a helpful distinction or does that make it even more confusing? We got one helpful, okay. <laughs> Could be worse. <laughs> Questions on this? Maybe I'm not explaining it well, or maybe it's a new concept that takes a few minutes to digest. So it's perfectly biblically sound and orthodox to say that things happen in response to choices we make. Things happen in response to actions we take. That is true. Okay? That's not an insult to God's sovereignty. That's the way God works out his sovereignty. We're good on this? Good to move on? Yeah? All right, paragraph three. In his ordinary providence, God makes use of means, though he is free to work apart from them, beyond them, and contrary to them at his pleasure. Okay, so what this is saying again is normally the world is predictable enough. If you do this, this will happen. If you do this, this will happen. God is predictable enough that we can calculate that in our decisions. But he's not forced to do that. And that's what miracles are. Miracles are a strange providence. They're a providence that we don't expect. Like an east wind that's strong enough to make a path through the Red Sea for the Israelites to get through. Okay? God used means to do it. He didn't just separate the water. He did it with a wind. Okay? So there's a means. But do you think, just if you lived in that area, just observing the weather patterns, is this something you could expect to happen every couple months or ever? No. Not at all. It's a miracle. Because God is working through extraordinary means. So let's look through that. Who wants to take Acts 27? Vel? Okay. And who wants to take Isaiah 55? Ray? Okay.
Yeah, that, why don't you just read the whole, start, maybe start at 27 and then read through to the end there so we can get the full sense. Okay, so God intended to spare these people. Did he accomplish his goal? Yep. And he did it by them all saying, I guess I'm just a robot. I'll just stand here with this invisible providential force field around me so no one can touch me, and I won't do anything. Right? That's how it works? Is that how God's providence works? Or did they get busy doing stuff? Yeah, it sounds like a pretty busy scene, actually. (laughs) It sounds like lots of important decisions were getting made in very short order, okay? And these were real decisions. And that's how God saved them, okay? Are you getting a sense for how this works, okay? You're not a puppet. You're not a robot. You're real, as are God's purposes, okay? Uh, I've given the analogy. This one really stuck it in my head for me and helped me catch on when I first heard it. Uh, but the prophecy that none of Jesus' bones would be broken. Okay? So God says that. Now, will it necessarily be the case that Jesus' bones will not be broken? Yeah. Is it an absolute necessity that Jesus' bones can't be broken? Okay? In one sense, yes, but it's not an absolute necessity because his bones aren't made of titanium. Okay? Had God decreed that his bones would be broken, they would have been, because they were breakable. You see that? He had breakable bones that it was impossible to break. Okay? Because it's not an absolute necessity, it's a contingent necessity. God is going to do things in such a way that the soldiers aren't going to break them. Okay? I know this is getting deep into the chemistry of theology here, but I think it's important that we... Uh, because one of the first criticisms that often comes back if you hold to a high view of God's providence is, well, so we're just puppets, we're just robots, and absolutely not. 
Or if you emphasize the fact that we are actually moral agents, oh, so you don't believe God is providential. Yeah, yeah, we do. <laughs> okay? We, we have to hold this together. We don't pick just cold, hard sovereignty because that's easy to understand in such a way that it leaves us robots. Or we don't take human responsibility so strongly that we say, well, all those verses about God accomplishing his decree must not mean anything because this stuff makes more sense to me. So that's, that's what I'm going to go with. Okay? All of Scripture is inspired, so if it tells us God accomplishes His purposes, we, we know that. And if we also know that we make important decisions, well, then we hold that. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. Does God credit himself with a high rate of success? Yeah? If you're God, how are you estimating your rate of success of working out your decree? It looks like 100%, doesn't it? I will accomplish my purpose. Okay? I will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I'll stop here just to stimulate a bit of discussion. Um, if you would look at a hundred genuine, born-again, Bible-believing, sweet Christians that you know of, and there's a hundred of them. If we're trying to hold two things together here, where do you think is the more common error? Do we have too high a, a view of God's sovereignty so that we make people into robots? Or are we so uh, emphasizing human moral responsibility that we have an inadequate view of God's decree and God's providence? This isn't a right or wrong. This is, in your experience... On which side are we weak? If you had to guess. The second one? An inadequate view of God's providence? Because in that moment, you have to actually do it, right? right? You have to make it. Yeah, I spent lots of time struggling when I first encountered this stuff. How does this work? And I, I've maybe shared that. I spent a year saying, yeah, this is clearly what the Bible teaches, but I don't have to like it. I spent a year like that. Yes, this is the Bible teaching, and I dislike it. And then through some difficult providences, I started to see, no, this is beautiful. This is my lifeline. Okay? God, God is gracious. Yeah. 
Yep. I'm just asking, do you at least understand it in the same way I do, which is I've got lots of questions, <laughs> but this is the teaching of, the, of Scripture. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's an important point, both of what, well, all three comments. It's not nonsense. Okay, this is utterly logical because it comes from God's own mind. So the problem isn't that God sometimes suspends the laws of logic. The problem is I have a little three-pound brain that scientists say I use less than 10% of. Okay? How, how, plus, I'm fallen. How much is my sin? Okay, so one, I'm created, so I already have limitations on me. And then I'm still dealing with sin, how much does that keep us from understanding true logic? I, I don't know, but evidently a fair bit, because there's lots of things like this. Eternity, yeah, we, we accept it. God's eternal. Well, fi- figure that out. We can only think in terms of space and time, right? It, it's too big in many ways for our minds, but that doesn't mean it's nonsense, Okay, and I think some Christians make that move. Well, then we just move into mysticism and it, it's all nonsense. But the problem here isn't that this is nonsense. The problem is I don't have adequate access to true uh, logic, to true truth. We know what God tells us and we, we can't go beyond that. No, that's exactly right. No, there is. We are dealing with a God that is far too wonderful for us to fully understand. And, and think about that, too. When the prophets see God, when God comes to visit the prophets, think of Isaiah 6 as the most remarkable. He sees God for who he is. And what does he say? What does Isaiah say? 
Woe is me. I am undone. Okay, he is describing a mental and emotional collapse. He is undone. He is being disintegrated in the presence of a God that is too wonderful and too holy for him. Last week we talked a bit about Job. After God comes and talks to Job about his suffering, God says, okay, I, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I hate myself. That's Job's response to seeing God. I hate myself. I repent in dust and ashes. You're too wonderful. Okay? To see God, to hear him, is a, it's a, for us, it's not wonderful. It's terrifying. Okay? I am undone. This is serious stuff. And so can we fully understand and fit a God like that in our brain? I, <laughs> I don't think so. No. Yeah, and we don't want to. And how much more will we understand in glory? Probably lots more. But maybe it's still, we'll, maybe we still won't understand it perfectly. Okay, so God is free to work apart from means. Uh, so he, okay, well, first of all, he makes use of means. So in the ordinary course of life, 99.9% of our life is just ordinary means. Open the tap and water comes out. Put seed in the ground, something will germinate. It's just normal. Put food in your mouth, your hunger goes away. That's normal means. That's how God almost always operates. But then it says he is free to work apart from them. Who wants to read Hosea 1.7? Okay, so there's an instance of God promising almost apart from means, right? What would be some other examples that you can think of in Scripture where God uses no means? He just directly does something apart from means. Conception of Jesus, sure. Yep. I think so, yeah. There was no surgery. There was no doctor. The, it, telling the, the, the cripple to just stand up and walk. I think there's typological properties in clay that we haven't figured out yet. I think that clay is a reminder that he came from the dirt. And there's also trees that he sees in that vision. I think there's actually... We won't go into that. That's a great story. And I think it's rich in typology. Um, but it is a means. He uses clay to open the guy's eyes. So it's, it's a weird means. Yeah. No, and there's lots of them. Remember the, uh, the was it Elijah or Elisha? The, the widow whose oil flask never gets empty? She never goes to fill it up. That's just apart from means. God's just doing that. He just keeps, keeps it full. Right? <laughs> does, it, does it stay working that way? Yeah. That would be cool if we could find that. There should be an Indiana Jones movie about that. <laughs> well, there's probably a bit of both there, right? Because they start with food. 
but they're not replenishing those baskets. They just stay full. So that would be another one. There's kind of means, but once it's going, there are no means. There is no baking a fresh loaf or catching a new fish. So yeah, there's probably a bit of both in that one. Well, he used the angel of death, but that's a means that's so out of control that to us that looks like it's just an immediate action of God, right? Because there's no one going around with a sword physically killing these people. Yeah. For those who didn't hear, Caitlin asked about the angel of death at Passover, if that was means or apart from means. Okay, so we've seen those two. So God can work with means, as he almost always does, or he can act miraculously or immediately, without means. He can work beyond means. Romans 4, who wants to grab that one? Kevin Minan will read that one for us. Uh, Romans 4, 19-21. Can I put you on the spot? I don't want to make anyone too uncomfortable. If you really don't want to, I can get someone else. Okay, so you take a couple who's 90 and 100 years old, and they get pregnant. Means or no means? This is beyond means, (laughs) okay? That baby probably came about the normal way, but if you saw a 90-year-old woman who had conceived a baby by a 100-year-old man, you'd say, hmm, that's not normal. (laughs) That, That doesn't match the rest of my experience of life. Okay, usually these people are considerably younger when this type of thing happens. Okay, so kind of means, kind of not, right? Beyond means. It's the normal action that would have resulted in that pregnancy. At least it doesn't say otherwise. So we can assume it's the normal course of events that result in a pregnancy. But it's weird. And so maybe that's where the fish and the bread would maybe fit in here too. You start with the normal basket of food, but it's just, this is going beyond what, what we would ever expect in the normal course of events. So do we have a grip of beyond means? He uses normal means, but in a way that seems really stretched to our minds. Does that make sense? And then lastly... He can work contrary to them. Daniel 10, 327. Who wants to take that? Okay, so now we're not just dealing with something extraordinary, like an unexplainable east wind that parts the sea, but now we're going directly against what we would expect. If you throw a person in a fire, what do you expect? 
they're dead. They're burnt. They smell like smoke. Okay, now we're going directly against what we would expect. Nebuchadnezzar threw these men in the furnace in order to kill them. And they come out without a mark. That's working against the normal means, against the normal course of things. Okay? Does that make sense? Again, this isn't just about slamming through stuff. This, to the degree that we are able, I, w- I hope this makes sense. Questions on this? Contrary to what you'd expect. Okay. Yeah, and still we see God supernaturally acting in ways we don't expect, right? We probably all know of someone whose cancer just disappeared between scans. No treatment, and no one has an answer, right? Is that the kind of stuff you're talking about? Or are you talking even, am I not quite catching that then? Right. Right. Because the yeah, because it's so contrary to what you would expect under those circumstances. Yep. Good. Anything else? Okay, so when we talk about God acts immediately or immediately, we're not talking, when we say immediate, we're not talking about speed. We're not saying God's acting right now. Media is an in-between. Okay, so there's means. The news media is in between you and the event. The median in the road is between you and the oncoming traffic. Okay, so that's the medium. So if God acts immediately... That means he acts without means. He just does it directly. That's what we mean when we talk about God acting immediately. We're not saying he's acting fast, although he may. We're saying he just does it direct in a way that doesn't use the normal course of events. And the next one is a bit longer, so we'll maybe save that one for next week. More discussion on this. For how many of us does this challenge our tradition? Does this seem normal? Does this seem new? Contrary? Different? Just a fuller explanation? Kind of in an old reformational church that has forgotten. Is that what you mean? Yeah. yeah. Lots of churches forget their theology over time. Mm-hmm. 
right? Yeah, and that's a missing link for lots of people too, right? Okay, now we know all this stuff. Is the point just to know it or <laughs> go live courageously now, right? Yeah. Anyone else? Is this, is your experience like Yannicka? This is more just going over what we knew to be true? Or is it truly different? And if we're extra quiet this morning, then I'll be okay with that too. Right. And now we see there's different kinds of miracles. <laughs> yeah. So I'll ask this then. Are we seeing value in the fact that Christians from past ages have written down their faith? Is this a valuable document? I mean, no one should hopefully say this is the Bible. It's not. But is it helpful that we have confessions and creeds from the past? Yeah, I I think it really is. Yep. Yeah, one, we wouldn't get to the same place nearly as fast. And second, it's a neglect of all the work that's been done. My nephew was over the other day, and uh, he was talking about this too, and he said, okay, so now we can Google search anything. I can look at my Bible on my phone. If I'm looking for a key word, I just put it in, and I've got all the verses with that word in it. It's great. Think doing this in the 12th century. How well do you have to know your Bible to just have it come out of you when you're writing? How well do you have to know the Greek poets to just be able to just naturally quote Cicero and uh, Parmenides to, to be able to just explain philosophy to people? It, it's incredible. There was no Google. Okay? Some guys like Luther wrote 10,000 pages worth of commentary in theology. He preached five times a week, and he ran a pastor's college out of his house. Without the tools, we, like how? <laughs> Calvin preached himself literally to death, and he had a Greek New Testament, and he would translate it into French as he was reading, and then preach in Latin. No notes. Okay? God has used some remarkable people in the past. And why would we not pick that work up? That doesn't mean they're perfect. It doesn't mean it's done. We, we stand on the shoulders of giants and we push further. But I think there's tremendous value to reacquainting ourselves with a form of Christianity that people from other ages would recognize. Okay, we don't have to innovate. We don't have to reinvent this. We, we are glad for the inheritance we've received and then we push on into the future. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I want to thank you so much for uh, the way you work in your creation, uh, the way you've worked in your church, and the way you've worked through people in the past and in the present, and the way we trust you will continue to in the future. 
Lord, I want to thank you that previous generations of Christians have thought through these issues and they have written it down in ways that can help guide us today as we shape and form our own thoughts. Lord, and I pray that we wouldn't try to turn them into saints or into perfect people, but that we would gladly accept their work uh, and that we would build on it and give an even greater inheritance to our children and grandchildren. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us here to have a sense of perspective in who we are, who you are, uh, and even of time, that we would build multi-generational faithfulness, that we would think that way of handing these things down uh, one generation to the next, knowing that you are faithful to a thousand generations. Lord, and I pray that this wouldn't just be uh, to fill our heads up with words and knowledge, but that we can go out living uh, our lives in, in a humble confidence that we know you are God. We know that your providence is underneath us. We know each day that we can go to bed and put our head on the pillow, uh, knowing that that was the day you had made, and you'll do it again tomorrow. Lord, help us to have that confidence. Help us to make wise decisions. Use the means that you have given us. Uh, and I pray at the same time that we would have an unshakable confidence in your purposes for your creation and for history. I submit each dear saint here into your hands. Lord, teach us, grow us, strengthen us, uh, and help us with a sense of history, with a sense of perspective that will honor and glorify you. Thank you for your kindness. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.